68 degrees 39 minutes south, 52 degrees 26 minutes west, 1700 fathoms down in dark icy waters. There she sleeps for more than a hundred years now. Those who find her, her name still proudly displayed on her stern, pay their respects to the endurance, then leave her in peace and rise to the surface. Her final voyage has become part of one of the most remarkable stories of survival against the odds. Ernest Shackleton's extraordinary feat of leadership in the Antarctic expedition of 1914, keeping all 27 of his men alive and sane over three years in hostile and constant life-threatening conditions, is legendary. The nine months they spent on the Endurance, as she fought the vice grip of massive ice flows, were a testament to his mental and moral fortitude and show us a man with a profound understanding of the human mind and its needs. to the sun on May 1st and entered the period of twilight that would be followed by the darkness of midwinter. The sun, by the aid of refraction, just cleared the horizon at noon and set shortly before 2 p.m. A fine aurora in the evening was dimmed by the full moon which had risen on April 27th and would not set again until May 6th. The disappearance of the sun is apt to be a depressing event in the polar regions. For the long months of darkness involved mental as well as physical strain. But the Endurance's company refused to abandon their customary cheerfulness, and a concert in the evening made the Ritz a scene of noisy merriment, in strange contrast with the cold, silent world that lay outside. All hands are cheery and busy, and will do their best when the time for action comes. In the meantime, we must wait. But my heart's right there. 
Professor John Horne considers the historical context for Shackleton's expedition to cross the Antarctic via the South Pole. I mean, when, when, the, when the expedition is being planned, so this is in the context of um, Scott's expedition having gone and, 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 and uh, uh, Scott and his comrades having perished on the, on the return trip from the, uh, from the South Pole, there's still excitement about the polar regions. And, um, uh, and the figure of the, of the explorer is still the kind of ultimate figure of the of the of the hero perhaps along with the with the with the colonial general but um but uh, somebody like kitchener but but certainly the, the 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 polar explorers stand on that kind of um pedestal and it's in that context i think that um shackleton raises money raises a lot of money in order to pursue this this new expedition and remember of course there are always scientific justifications for these expeditions as there had been when the admiralty funded cook's expedition to go and and explore the pacific and australia so mapping the Antarctic, finding out what is there is important geographically, it could be important geologically, and it could be important too for defence and strategic reasons. And he leaves, can you believe it, he leaves on the um, 3rd of August 1914. War is in the process of breaking out. War will be declared by Britain against Germany um, the following day. Germany has already declared war against Russia and France. It's clear that war is now happening. But at the time, although there was fear of war, there was an omnipresent feeling that war could happen. Nobody believed that it would happen. So when the war came at the beginning of August 1914, it was a tremendous shock. And there was no reason for Sir Winston Churchill as First Lord of the Admiralty to stop Shackleton going at that moment. For all anybody knew, the war might be over in a few weeks, might be over in a few months. And so Sh Churchill says, go to Shackleton, and Shackleton goes. And like the war itself, Shackleton's expedition turns out to be a kind of war of attrition, an expedition of attrition that lasts three years. It lasts almost as long, three quarters of the length of the First World War itself. In that sense, both things were a surprise. Twenty-fourth Empire Day was celebrated with the singing of patriotic songs in the Ritz, where all hands joined in wishing a speedy victory for the British arms. We could not know how the war was progressing, but we hoped that the Germans had already been driven from France and that the Russian armies had put the seal on the Allies' success. The war was a constant subject of discussion aboard the Endurance, and many campaigns were fought on the map during the long months of drifting.
and the world to which Shackleton returns in May 1917 is a world utterly transformed, utterly transformed, except, as I say, there's this odd, this curious thing that the sort of virtues which he's come to embody, which is that of courage and loyalty, honour um, and, uh, and camaraderie, uh, those are also things which are operational on the Western Front and the other fronts of the First World War. First, optimism. Second, patience. Third, physical endurance. Fourth, idealism. Fifth and last, courage. Sailor and explorer Paddy Barry is no stranger to Antarctic ice, having sailed the Northwest Passage and led an expedition in Shackleton's footsteps. As a leader in the field, Shackleton, among those of his time, among the Scots and the Amundsons and the Nansons, as a leader, he was unequaled. Once they got into the field, Shackleton was in his element, and he was terrific. His judgment, his inspiration, his treatment of his men, his care of the, care of the men was unequalled. All the, the nuanced qualities of his character uh, were always those uh, on the shore. But once, once, he, once he got away, there he was in his element, the very, very best. Dr. Hilary Moss reflects on the motivating power of music as therapy. That idea of them dancing and singing and making music, uh, it, it's just a release as well, isn't it? I mean, I think music can often be a distraction from bad things. So Schopenhauer, the philosopher, famously said that the arts kind of lift you out of the misery, which is everyday life, which is a bit bleak. You know, <laughs> the idea that we're all pretty miserable, but it's that sense of lifting you out of something miserable. I think it can... Um, bring people together in, a, in an unusual way. It can really express something about a person in a, quite a deep way. We seem to be a wonderfully happy family, but I think Sir Ernest is the real secret of our unanimity. Considering our divergent aims and difference of station, it is surprising how few differences of opinion occur. He's a wonderful man. During the afternoon, three Adelie penguins approached the ship across the flow while Hussey was discoursing sweet music on the banjo. The solemn-looking little birds appeared to appreciate it's a long way to Tipperary, but they fled in horror when Hussey treated them to a little of the music that comes from Scotland. The shouts of laughter from the ship added to their dismay, and they made off as fast as their short legs would carry them. My name is Nuala Moore and for the last 15 to 20 years of my life I've been involved in swims, um, adventures, triathlons but mostly in the last 10 years I focused on ice and pushing myself into the areas of extreme for the main reason of finding the best version of ourselves because extremes keep us honest. I remember there are certain days where things are going incredibly long and I sing meatloaf. Because, I mean, what else do you sing that's seven minutes long and you knew every word of bad out of hell? Because you're driving into the waves. In terms of resilience, music can, I think, give you that 
push in some way to keep going. So, you know, I've seen it in um, in rehab programs with people who've lost limbs and they're doing they're doing rehab with a physiotherapist with a music therapist and the music is that thing that gets them up makes them bother to get up and motivated helps them to stand when they're struggling with standing it, you know when you're in the gym sometimes a good piece of music can make you do that extra 10 minutes And then most recently down in the southern tip of Cape Horn, um, it was probably the most scariest moment of my life was when I headed south to Cape Horn. I was the first swimmer in the world to swim from the Pacific to the Atlantic Ocean south of Cape Horn in the Drake Passage as we head south to the Antarctic. And again, it's 55 degrees south. There's no land east or west as the world turns and you're exposed to these meeting of the oceans and all this excited water. And then suddenly all these doubts came in and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't get my breathing correct and I knew I had to let go because I had just paid a substantial amount of money to come here and then I just closed my eyes and I thought you are down at the southern tip of Cape Horn in the most horrendous waters that exist and all I could think of was the Christy Moore song around Terra del Fuego and up the warm Gulf Stream because we were at Terra del Fuego the end of the world to make it fast, he bent the mast and built up muddy steam Around Terra del Fuego and up the warm Gulf Stream He crossed the last horizon, Mount Brandon was in sight And when he cleared the customs into Dingle for the night And it was around by Terra del Fuego and up the warm Gulf Stream and then when he passed the customs into Dingle for the night. And all I could think of, you are passing from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean. This is the start of the wild Atlantic way. Now take the journey. Is it right or left? So I love Christy Moore. So it's amazing where, it doesn't matter where your mind goes, you go somewhere. And I mean, there's huge, I suppose there's huge elements of faith attached to those types of expeditions. The entire population came, the place was chucker block. All of their money wouldn't get your nose inside the shop. The fishermen hauled up their nets, the farmers left their hay. And the Kerry people know that saints don't turn up every day. Writer Dennis Perkins has studied the common traits of leadership. I think Shackleton was very much aware of, uh, of trying to mean in the use of space and how people would sort of hang together and, and meet in the, the so-called Ritz part of the ship and we would meet at the Ritz and we would do our skits and we would make fun of each other and play the zither banjo. So there would be these communal settings. And um, so, yeah, I think it's a, it's an art form and but Shackleton was certainly good at it. Um, I think, you know, when you are traveling with groups of people, I think it's an Irish thing that when we were travelling from Russia, we were swimming from Russia to America, which in itself is quite insane. But we were working with a Russian military ship and Anne-Marie Ward from Donegal and I were the only two Irish swimmers on this huge team of international and egos, etc. So we decided that we would take a cabin on the Russian side as opposed to on the international swimmer side and the Irish thing to separate ourselves from all of the drama. The second thing that I did was to go to the kitchen and secure a kettle 
because the Irish way is to have tea bags to be able to put the kettle on. So when we looked at our cabin, we set it up, you know, in such a way that it was always open. And I mean, from um, a funny side of it, if somebody knocked on your door at three o'clock in the morning, it wasn't to say, I like you. It was like, can we have a cup of tea? So in creating our space, we always allowed the door to be open. And again, if I can bring you back to what we're doing, we are swimming from Russia to America. We're lowering our bodies into two and three degree water in the middle of the night on a relay. If that door is open for a cup of tea, look at the value it creates within a team. We don't speak the language, but we are together in the fact that we can share our moments when we're not in threat mode. So having that nest, having that cabin and making it accessible to people, it creates the bond of trust, which allows you to remember me when I get into the boat. Then you and I have had a communication, be it only over a cup of tea. But there it's those moments of team that create trust and that allow each other to come down from the threat mode of fighting in expedition. So when you go into your cabin, it should be protective. And I think the Irish are wonderful at that. From Ulysses by Alfred Tennyson Come, my friends, it is not too late to seek a newer world. Push off, and sitting well in order, smite the sounding furrows. For my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset, and the baths of all the western stars, until I die. with the force of millions of tons of moving ice behind them were simply annihilating the ship. It was a sickening sensation to feel the decks breaking up under one's feet, the great beams bending and then snapping with a noise like heavy gunfire. The noise of ice is um, like, like uh, being inside in a barrel. And I can compare only being inside in a, t- a, sm- a small timber boat. It's very noisy, and you hear this cracking of the ice outs- outside. Some of it bang it, bang it, bang it into you. Um, at best, it's a tinkle. At worst, it's a, pr- a pressure and a, and a grinding. That for the week after week, month after month, of knowing that the boat probably won't survive the ice pressure, and that they're going to have to uh, be uh, marooned out on the ice with provisions and much smaller boats. It must have been devastating on their minds. tribute to Shackleton that nobody lost their mind of the 28 men that was with him that were with him on the endurance that nobody lost their minds because in the Arctic in these situations in chasing for the North Pole Peary's men and Greeley and others nearly always among the group there were some who who uh, who mentally lost lost their minds. That never happened to any of Shackleton's men and that is due to Shackleton's quality as a leader. He was able to strike a balance between being an inspirational leader 
somebody that everyone looked up to and respected, and also sort of one of the one of the troops. And he would do menial chores. He would pitch in. He would make sacrifices. At one point, got upset with the cook for giving him special meal. And at the same time, people called him the boss out of a out of a feeling of respect. So Shackleton, I believe, was able to pull off one of those balancing acts that leaders have great difficulty with because they either want to be in charge um, or uh, to create a democracy where everyone has the same vote and there really isn't any leadership. And there is this balance that Shackleton was able to strike. Um, and it's a rare formula, and it takes a lot of thought. There are strategies to bind people together in the face of danger. Nuala Moore explains. It's very important that the captain has a position within its team and then becomes the captain again. And that can happen out of the command structure. And that's what happens in cabins, in that people sit on an equal structure. It's when you stand that things change. And in those circumstances, you break the fact that you are no longer in positions. And that is, it's having to be have that trust. And that's what creates a team. It's trust. That happens in cabins because that happens out of the mainstream structure of what happens on the ship. He's a wonderful man. He looks after me himself with all the tender care of a trained nurse, which indeed he seems to be. Far more than merely my leader and master for the time being. He attends to me himself, making up the fire and making me a cup of tea during the night if I happen to say that I'm thirsty reading to me and always entertaining me with his wonderful conversation, making me forget my pain by, by joking with me continually, as if I were a spoiled child. What sacrifices would I not make for such a leader as this? I pray God I can manage to get the whole party safe to civilization. You, if you don't see the human side of your team, which is not what you're looking for in a survival mode, if you're out on the ship, you're not looking for the human side, you're not looking for the emotional side, you're looking for the fighting side. But once you get into that area, then you get the human. You tap into what makes them tick. Because if you go now, we look at all here. I here. I'm not human bashing. I'm not bashing today's environment. But you look at human factors. We're all talking about situational awareness. But if they did not know back then, a hundred years ago, how to make members of their team tick, then who were they going to send to war? 
they knew that their men were willing to take this step. And you're only willing to fight for somebody if you know they're worth fighting for. So my, my suggestion is that nests are created for those reasons. We celebrated Midwinter's Day on the 22nd of June. The twilight extended over a period of about six hours that day. And there was a good light at noon from the moon and also a northern glow with wisps of beautiful pink cloud along the horizon. A sounding gave 262 fathoms with a mud bottom. No land was in sight from the masthead, although our range of vision extended probably a full degree to the westward. The day was observed as a holiday, necessary work only being undertaken, and after the best dinner the cook could provide, all hands gathered in the Ritz, where speeches, songs and toasts occupied the evening. After supper, at midnight, we sang God Save the King and wished each other all success in the days of sunshine and effort that lay ahead. We parted on the shore, sung by Harry Lauder, Edison Record. Years and years and years and years and years and years and years since I parted from my sweetheart on the shore. I never will forget the second. Sunday, 18th July. Temperature minus 18. A fine morning. A lovely blaze of red light on the horizon, which had a peculiar effect on the flow, making everything look red. We had a walk about two miles until stopped by open water. The dogs had plenty of exercise. We've been drifting back south this last two days, but it started to blow again from the southwest, so we're homeward bound again. We have the gramophone going with all the latest songs before we left. We have never had a religious service since second out from Plymouth, but plenty of filthy remarks as there are a few who can't speak of anything else. Of course, they think it makes them manly instead of blackguards. I don't see how we could have had better luck than we have had, and if we are spared to get out of it, I don't think there will be many volunteers for to come back. Roland, and you, of course there's one consolation, you're away back from everybody that you owe any money to. <laughs> on the very last voyage that I was away, there was one day I was up on the rigging sitting having a smoke. And the captain told the cabin boy to come up and tell me to go at once and... There are four tables. I chose to sit at the same table as Cheatham and and McNish because I thought a little unrefined company would be good training for hot life. But I must say that McNish is a tough proposition. First, he sucks his teeth loudly, then produces a match, carefully sharpens it and proceeds to perform various dental operations. Occasionally, he expectorates through the window and is scooping up peas with a knife. He's a, a perfect juggler. His conversation... Well, anyway, we, we get on pretty well, but uh, I feel sure I get on his nerves as much as he does on mine.
one of the most interesting things is I think that he really did avoid um, the emergence of any kind of clique or subgroup that would have fragmented the team. Nobody was scapegoated. And there would have been an opportunity to make fun of or scapegoat almost everyone. But Shackleton clearly knew that that was a threat to unity and uh, so was able skillfully to avoid anything like that developing. Shackleton was, of his time, class conscious, more than class conscious. He had been to Dulwich College. Um, he, he had joined the Merchant Navy and he was an officer in the Merchant Navy and that was a tough, a tough place where, but still there was a huge distinction between the guys down there shoveling the coal onto the, onto the engines to keep the steam boilers going and the officers above who were na navigating and, decided, decide, and deciding to do this or to do that. He wound up going to the Merchant Marine Academy instead of Dartmouth because of the economic situation of the family. And at the time, anyway, the Royal Navy, as I understand it, was much more hierarchical than the Merchant Marine. And he developed uh, of, uh, the, having the ability to establish rapport with officers, with able seamen, with everyone. And in one dramatic moment, uh, there was an argument between Lionel Green Street, the first officer, and Robert Clark, the biologist. And in the process, Clark bumps the elbow of Green Street, who spills his milk. And tears are rolling up in Green Street's eyes. And Clark, uh, without a word, reached over and poured a little bit of his milk into Green Street's mug. And without a word, everyone in the tent followed suit. And so they had been arguing minutes before, and minutes later, they were sharing their milk, which literally was life and death. They were starving to death. And what I believe is that those norms of sharing the milk um, that culture was created in the very beginning as Shackleton set the stage by, for example, having Macklin the surgeon scrub, scrubbing the decks with everyone else. And, uh, and, and his own example of getting upset with a cook for making him a special meal and sharing reindeer skin sleeping bags and all of those things became part of the fabric, the ethos of the team. Coping mechanisms when a group are idle are, large, are, are largely dictated by the personality of the leader. Um, keep them busy. This was the old British Navy, British Navy thing, have them doing rubbish, rub, rub, rubbishy work um, all of the time for no, for no purpose in itself. Um, a certain amount of laid-on entertainment. The polar uh, accounts all have winter theatre and getting out a local newspaper on the ship where they're stuck. 
Dennis Perkins agrees with Paddy Barry on the power of activity, discipline, routine and entertainment to create respect, kindness and collective resilience. Um, and they, they had other things. They had night dog sled races. They had athletic competitions. They had engaging distractions uh, like exploring a possibility of going to Alaska, which was never going to happen. Crane had started to take the pups out for runs and it was very amusing to see them with their rolling canter just managing to keep abreast by the sledge and occasionally cocking an eye with an appealing look in the hope of being taken aboard for a ride. The young dogs under Crane's care pull as well, though not as strongly, as the best team in the pack. Hercules, for the last fortnight or more, has constituted himself leader of the orchestra. Two or three times in the 24 hours, he starts a howl, a deep, melodious howl. And in about 30 seconds, he has the whole pack in full song, the great, deep, booming, harmonious song of the half-wolf pack. Um, he wanted to maintain that spirit of optimism in others. And to do that, um, I think he used a lot of self-talk. That's I'm inferring that, but the fact that he had optimistic poems around Browning, Prospis, and other things um, contributed to his own self-talk. I mean, the things that we say to ourselves when faced with a challenge, the, the most uh, mundane example, I guess, would be you can do it. But something else might be, well, good shot in sports. Or, or you miss that one, but get the next one. And uh, a psychologist named Martin Seligman has written uh, a book on the power of learned optimism. So these are things that can be learned and practiced um, they may not come naturally to everyone, but the so-called self-talk um, is an example. If, by Rudyard Kipling. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give way to hating. And yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise.
it's the same with, with any type of a world. People are trying to find their relevance and they're terrified that they won't have relevance when two years pass. You know, and it's like they were looking at a niche market that now are staring at a screen. And if I can just drive into this world, somebody will see me. But I think one of the biggest fears that we have is not being noticed. And that is a fear of self. And, you know, I think for me personally, um, if you create a product, they will come. I mean, I started my expeditions back in 2005. And if you were to ask the random individual in the mainstream swimming world, a lot of people don't know me. But that's okay with me. Because I wake up three o'clock in the morning and I'm incredibly excited with what I've achieved. So I think it's where you create the value in who you are as a person. And maybe that comes with age and maybe it doesn't. Poetry for me, I'm not, I don't like reading poetry. However, I love, you know, statements. I love, you know, I, I just even a stand in, this is why you're here. It is one statement, but it has so much connotation. So, you know, there's so much in words but it's how they're delivered and it's what they meant at the time that you heard them. And that's the same with song. So for me, there will always be value to anything that creates thinking. You go back and you listen to the words of certain songs and of course they have value. The same with poetry, the same with books. Um, You know, that's just life. But yeah, there's value to everything for the person to which they were produced. But I think the last two years created more a need to be recognised and a fear of being forgotten rather than a product to be listened to. Shackleton had a reputation of being a lover of poetry and he consoled himself uh, reading Byron and such in his cabin. I don't believe it for a minute. I don't believe that a man of his background and what he was doing could possibly have had... um, a poet's instinct in him or a, or a, or a love of poetry. Um, I think that this was part of the persona that he liked to promote in terms of being the all the all-round Englishman. Um, he would have felt um, different from the men in the, fr- in the front end of the boat who were the, I dare I say, mere sailors. But as far as education was concerned, they wanted the double pay, which they were getting for being in these places. This was the attraction um, for the seamen, for the officers. It was, if they were scientists, it was that they would uh, write papers and get career progression. Um, and the main uh, and and the main the main feature of passing passing the time would have would have been sur- survival and sanity. And they also maintained the structure. Um, structure for taking care of the ship while the ship was afloat, but later on maintaining a lookout. And, you know, I've, I've asked myself, well, what exactly were, were they looking out for? It wasn't as if they were going to be rescued because, as you know, something else was happening in the world at that time. Uh, but they maintained that structure. And also, I think that lookout gave them somehow, this is my theory, um, an underlying sense of hope. And people have said to me, well, hope is not a strategy. And I've said, yes, that's true. But without hope, who needs a strategy?
the news that's going around. The shamrock is by law forbid to grow on Irish ground. No more St. Patrick's Day will keep his color can be seen. For there's a cruel against the wearing of the green. October 1915, 24th and 25th. We had the good luck to secure two seals on 22nd inst, a male and female one-year-old, probably, and therefore excellent eating, especially the latter, as she was not with pup. I had written the above, and had discontinued writing for the evening in order to work the gramophone for the general entertainment of the party. And had just put on the third tune, The Wearing of the Green, when a, a terrific crash shook the ship with a prolonged shiver, like a, an earthquake, and she listed about eight degrees to starboard. We finished the tune, and then went up on deck to see if anything unusual had occurred. And by this time, Sir Ernest had been out on the flow, and one could judge by his grave look that something really was amiss. And it soon proved to be even more serious than any of us had anticipated. But within five minutes, we were all hard at work preparing to abandon the ship as she had had her stern post almost wrenched out and water was pouring in through the crack. ship's gone, the stores are gone, so I guess we'll go home. You know, while Shackleton was taking things from the ship and throwing gold sovereigns down into the snow, but saying, we're taking this 12-pound zither banjo. It will be vital mental medicine for the men during the months ahead. After supper, they had a concert, accompanied by Hussey on his indispensable banjo. This banjo was the last thing to be saved off the ship before she sank, and I took it with us as a mental tonic. It was carried all the way through with us and landed on Elephant Island practically unharmed and did much to keep the men cheerful. Nearly every Saturday night such a concert was held when each one sang a song about some other member of the party. If that other one objected to some of the remarks, a worse one was written for the next week.
he did take care of his men but later on in the recommendations for the polar medal he was particularly unkind to the man who built the James, who built up the James Caird and made made it ready for the great 800 mile crossing to South Georgia, uh, Harry Magnish, because he was a Glaswegian socialist, uh, a lot of back chat. Um, uh, Shackleton never allowed that the Polar Medal be given to him, and for less lesser reasons, some of the other seamen also were never given the Polar Medal, and it should have been because the Polar Medal was given to anybody who did time in the Antarctic, and and the Arctic to a lesser extent, but in the Antarctic, and this was Shack- Shackleton's bad side, if I may call it that. Away from the Antarctic ice, he certainly had his failings, but Shackleton's name endures. John Horne again. What he's probably best remembered for is not so much his expedition from 1914 to 1917 when he, he tries to cross Antarctica from side to side, but from the failure of that expedition, but his brilliant rescue attempt that frozen in the ice, the ship gradually disintegrating, the crew having to move to boats on the ice. And then as the sea unfreezes somewhat, he travels, is it 700 miles to South Georgia and then goes back to collect the rest of the crew afterwards. That this is a a kind of heroism of a a different sort, of an unusual sort, is not the same as those who who discover the, um, the poles. And so that for me is the is the thing about Shackleton's reputation. We had seen God in his splendors, heard the text that nature renders. We had reached the naked soul of man. We were the fools who could not rest in the dull earth we left behind, but burned with passion for the south and drank strange frenzy from the wind. The world where wise men sit at ease fades from my unregretful eyes and blind across uncharted seas we stagger on our enterprise. At the long-abandoned Grytviken whaling station in South Georgia stands a modest granite pillar marking the final resting place of Ernest Shackleton, who died in 1922, just five years after the loss of the endurance. His heroic leadership of all 27 of his men from the stricken ship across hundreds of miles of ice to Elephant Island and thence to safety has earned him a mythic status in the field of polar exploration. The wreck of the Endurance was discovered at the bottom of the Weddell Sea in Antarctica on the 5th of March 2022, exactly 100 years after Shackleton's funeral. <laughs> 